I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Helen MacDonald, Tim D, and James MacDonald Lockhart to the bookshop, three of the finest writers on the natural, on the natural world working at the moment. Helen MacDonald's a poet. Some of her poetry is on sale this evening in Shearsman's Ground Aslant anthology. A naturalist, a conservationist, a historian of bird hides, and most importantly for our purposes this evening, the author of H's for Hawk, just published by Jonathan Cape, and incidentally, the most beautiful cover design of the year. Free with a book, probably for free without... It's nicely. Um, Helen will be in conversation with Tim D. Tim's memoir of birdwatching, The Running Sky, was published in 2009 and was a straight-up joy. It was followed last year by the even better Four Fields, and the event will be chaired by James MacDonald Lockhart, author of Raptor, A Journey Through Birds, an associate editor of the wonderful Archipelago magazine. Now I'll hand over to James, who'll explain the format of the discussion. Please join me in welcoming all three authors for what promises to be a marvellous evening. I've spent a fair amount of time over the last few weeks in a wood in Warwickshire, close to where I live. At this time of year, the wood is a quiet, dark place bird quiet but insect loud the air humming with hoverflies to borrow a passage from Tim's wonderful book Four Fields through June birdsong drains sweetly and slowly to the reductions of midsummer in the bushes hidden blackbird fledglings take over with their punctured tire seep noises one day all you hear is flies and you struggle to remember what has gone the other evening, I was standing just inside the wood when a huge bird rushed suddenly past me. It flew fast and low, weaving through the trees, and landed on a fallen oak trunk about 20 feet in front of me. My first thought, because of the bird's twisting speed through the trees, was hawk. And because of its size, I thought goshawk. I'd never seen a goshawk in the wood, never seen any sign of one. But when it landed, I saw straight away that it was not a goshawk, but a buzzard. A juvenile buzzard landed beside the adult bird and took the prey its parent had brought it and began to feed. It was a special encounter, a gift, something to treasure. Rarely do birds of prey come so close to you in the wild. I mention this encounter with a buzzard as a way into saying something about how I first encountered both Tim and Helen's work. 
because in both instances, for me, my encounters with their work was as much something to treasure, as much a gift as that buzzard encounter. I first came across Helen's work in her book Falcon, published as part of the Reaction Animal series. If, I, if you haven't read it, I, I really urge you to. Um, it, it's a beautiful book, beautifully illustrated, written with love and knowledge. Helen's Falcon is, is unlike any monograph I've read. There is a section early on in the book headed, What It Is Like to Be a Falcon. And just in the boldness and the imaginative ambition of that title, I knew that this was a writer I would stop everything to read. And I stopped everything to read her new book, H's for Hawk. Like the buzzard encounter, reading it has been a gift and a special encounter. It is a book about Helen's relationship with a young female goshawk she calls Mabel, who she trains using her skills and knowledge of falconry. That relationship with a goshawk is something that helps Helen through an intense period of grief at the sudden death of her father. It is a book also about the writer T.H. White, author of The Sword in the Stone, and a wonderful book called The Goshawk about White's own attempts to train a goshawk in the 1930s. Ages for Hawk is also a book that looks with great insight at our place and our role in the natural world. It is a book that glints with wonder, beauty, sadness and joy. Every paragraph, every sentence is a joy to read. Here is Helen watching goshawks in the wild. They were on the saw. Goshawks in the air are a complicated grey colour. Not slate grey, nor pigeon grey, but a kind of rain cloud grey, and despite their distance, I could see the big powder puff of white undertail feathers fanned out with the thick, blunt tail behind it, and that superb bend and curve of the secondaries of a soaring goshawk that makes them utterly unlike sparrowhawks. I first encountered Tim's work in an issue of Archipelago magazine from 2009, where he published an essay called Darkless Night about the seabirds of Shetland. And when I read Tim's essay, I was just astonished by the level at which he wrote. The writing just shimmered with beauty, and I ended up copying down large sections of the essay into a notebook, really because I thought to myself that if I was to be serious about writing, then I needed to learn from this writer. I copied his work down because I recognised in Tim's prose that this was how it was done. This was non-fiction writing at its very best. Soon after that essay appeared, Tim published his first book, The Running Sky, which, well, I had to buy several more notebooks. Such was its impact on me. It is a book about Tim's lifetime watching birds, and it's subtitled A Bird Watching Life. But bird watching, for me, is not quite right for what Tim does. Rather, he inhabits the birds, and the birds inhabit his language, so that his writing possesses, becomes possessed by, the quivering intensity and the shimmering beauty of the birds themselves. Here he is in his new book, Four Fields, writing about barn owls near his home in the fens. Barn owls, in the middle of the day, in the hovering ghost dance of their moffy obviousness, are like a moon in the sky in noon, a lantern by which to see the night, even in daylight. In the skull and swoop above the dead grass, they fly as if their wings were stiff-wired and subject to some force from below that meets and matches their hollow-boned lift. Four Fields is a book about an area of the Cambridgeshire Fens where Tim lives. It follows the four seasons through the Fens and keeps returning to them. Tim writes about this often strange, otherworldly landscape in great detail, with care, with concern, 
with hope and love. The book journeys out and back to the fens, to different landscapes, different fields around the world, to the prairies of Montana, to a farm in Zambia, and to the exclusion zone around Chernobyl in Ukraine. Like Helen's book, Four Fields is concerned with our relationship with the natural world, how we can live in and alongside it, how we can be part of it, and not part from it altogether. One of the many Fenland authors Tim writes about in Four Fields is Leonard Bloomfield, who published A Naturalist Calendar in the mid-19th century. Tim writes of Bloomfield that he knew so much and had noted so much that to be in the field with him must have been like walking out with a recording angel who could channel the song of the earth. And I feel this description of Bloomfield could be transferred to Tim himself. When you walk out with Tim into the fields of his book, such is the care and attention in his writing, in his observations, that you could be walking out with a recording angel, a writer who can channel the song of the earth. So that's the introduction. <laughs> and and um, I, I'd start by asking a question, I think, to Helen. Um, I, I mentioned T.H. White earlier, um, and I wanted to ask you, um, first of all, about um, White's presence in the book. And um, if, if he's someone in your research of him that you, you came to feel an affection for, or um, what, what, how you how you feel about him? What, he's a complex figure, um, okay. and I wondered what what you what, what you feel your relationship with him is. Com- complex is certainly one of the words you'd use. They'd probably yeah. be yes, problematic relationship yeah. I have with Th White. So, so I think maybe one way of talking about this is to think about how I encountered White for the first time. And I was I was very young, and I read the Gospel. I was this obsessed child. I I was obsessed with falconry. Um, I don't know how my, my parents put up with me. I was a nightmare. Um, and I read this book and I was baffled because it, 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 it was very, very bad falconry. This chap had a bird, he was trying to train it, it was very cruel and violent, the whole process. And I, I hated him, I hated what he was doing. I didn't understand what he was doing. I thought I understood the hawk in the book. But what he'd done was fly from his previous life. He, he, he was a very troubled man, I'm sure many of you know he struggled with his sexuality. He had an extremely horrible childhood. He was um, psychologically abused and very violently beaten by his parents and at school. And he really fled from himself and his job as a schoolmaster and fled to the woods in order to train a goshawk. So I guess when my dad died, part of what motivated me to do the same, even though this wasn't conscious, was the sense that when things are very bad, what you can do is run away and live with a hawk to somehow fight your demons, you know. Yes, I wasn't thinking particularly uh, logically at that time. Um, and I read the book, his book a lot during that year, but um, I didn't initially think I was going to write about him in quite as much detail as I did. And I went to Texas to the Harry Ransom Center, which I kept calling the Harry Ramsden Center, much to the... <laughs> got in enormous trouble by that, um, and went through all of his journals, all of his unpublished papers. Uh, there were these extraordinary vellum-bound notebooks with his, he had a, luckily a very clear hand, um, and they were full of uh, feathers and photographs and terrible drawings and incredibly honest, they were massively candid journals. And I started to sort of see a little bit more about this man and who he was, and I guess my book, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, this is a very long, long way around, but the book is... a about sort of as trying to escape yourself or that the, the way in which y- you might try and put yourself in alien minds. And one of those minds in the book is the hawk. And I think the other one is T.H. White, who I feel is a, is a very alien man, a very alien 
mentality to me. I mean, he would have hated me. He didn't think women should get the vote. You know, he was. I was going to ask if you if you want to go out hawking with him, but no, not. no. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I I think I'd find him almost unbearable to be near. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I still reading his his diaries and notebooks saw that in there was a very very small, very very scared and abused child, and I think I I, I began to feel a sympathy for him that I think. I hope is in the book, um, in that you know that no matter how problematic some things are, there is a certain amount of sympathy and love you can feel for people who've been dealt an incredibly bad hand. So yeah, so it's it's not it's a relationship of of you know luckily he's luckily he's dead, <laughs> but he's completely fascinating. I mean he, he's the man who who reimagined the Arthurian cycle for the twentieth century. I mean he was amazingly um, influential in, in in sort of recreating that myth. Um, Tim, Tim, yeah, you, you mentioned. The Gospel briefly at the end of Four Fields. Is, is he some? Is that book something that yeah, has had an impact um, on you as well? Uh, yeah, he's a horrible man, uh, and, it, and it's a fantastic book. Um, the bit I quote is is this wonderful scene uh, which Helen knows well, and which Helen talks about as well, where he he loses his hawk. He's a useless falconer, as Helen said, and he um, he becomes, in my mind, a field. He camouflages himself. He he, he gets a cloth and plants mustard and cress and grass seeds or something over the top of it and soaks it and, until it becomes a kind of green coat and he hides underneath this domed thing like a coracle upturned with a lure, a pigeon, a poor pigeon he's got to, to try to get his hawk to come back down from the woods where it's run to. And I, I mean, I, I, my book finishes with various people turning themselves into fields. Mm -hmm. So um, <laughs> that was my interest in him. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly engaging book because he's... He's a very repellent person, but he's harder on himself than anyone possibly could be. I mean, he, his, his return upon himself through his journals, through his own writing, through his, the stuff he was happy to give out to the public, let alone the stuff he was writing for himself, is savage. I mean, he, but, and he's more critical of himself than, than anybody else could be. So I, he sort of earns his keep, as far as I'm concerned, in that way. Mm. Uh, he's also got, as Helen quotes, wonderful, wonderful vivid moments, this fantastic image of a... Of a, of a Magpie flying like a frying pan. Yes, magpies fly like frying pans, which is beautiful. I mean, which as soon is, as you read is that. It's perfect, exactly. And um, another one he said that um, bicycling, bicycling along a, a country lane in, in summer is like cycling up the inside of a snake. These, these very, very visceral, vi vivid mm. things that, that catch in the mind and, and, and stay there. You know, he, was, mm. he was very good at that. Yeah. Um, I have news of, of his lost hawk as well. Um, I, this is quite recent news. This is some stop press. Sorry, I'm. So. In the, the end of the Goshawk, he loses his hawk. Um, he, he, I'm, so I hope there's no spoilers for anyone here. Yeah. He sort of does it on purpose, really. He, he, he lengthens the bird's leash with very, very weak, tarred twine, and it snaps, and the hawk is gone, towing behind it all its sort of falconry equipment and jesses and swivels and all this sort of stuff. And part of the amazement of the Goshawk for me when I was small is that Goss was, he never found Goss. And in, somewhere in my childish brain, I thought he might somehow still be out there. But I saw a, um, a very old falconer quite recently who knew a man who'd met a gamekeeper in Buckinghamshire in the late 1930s, who'd found the skeleton of a hawk all tied up with straps of leather in a bush. So, you know, Goss was found eventually, even if he was a, a sort of uh, desiccated... Yes, that's not very cheerful, is it? <laughs> that was just a sort of, yes, a bit sort of newsy thing there, yes. Sorry, sorry, we can carry on. Um, and another writer who I think comes into both your books, certainly in the Running Sky, Tim, is J.A. Baker, and, uh, and I, I wonder if you wanted to talk a, a little bit about his presence and his, his influence over, over both your books, and, and you talk about him quite a, a little bit as well. In, in, I, I do, but I, I, I suspect I don't like J.A. Baker yeah. as much as I should. 
Um, I think that's partly because I grew up on falconry books, and for me, falcons, peregrine falcons, were these very friendly, quite tame, rather aristocratic, cool things that were there. They were right there in front of you. And when I read Baker, I, I was like, well, you know, this is written in purple prose, and falconry books aren't written in purple prose, and peregrines aren't these distant symbols of death. They're actually quite friendly, dog-like things. So I, 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 was, I, I was quite oppositional to it when I was young, and I think that's sort of never quite gone away. And it's, a, it's about that sense that um, who gets to own the meanings of natural objects? And, and for me, falconry owned the meaning of peregrines, and Baker didn't. But I, I, you know, everyone else loves him, so I feel really a bit guilty about it. <laughs> Def- are you, you going to defend? <laughs> well, he, um, I used to learn, know that book off by heart as a child, and I used to steal those lines from that from from the peregrine for my essays at school. Um, I think it's quite interesting. I think he made it. He probably made it up. I mean, I think it's a novel, actually. Uh, I know the, the the bird watchers in Essex, where he, he allegedly set the book. I mean, he, he did live in Essex. Um, had little time for him, and it's astonishing what he claims to have seen. There are things in that book that no other person has ever seen, um, which but which sound plausible. Uh, almost that you can feel them sort of pressing close towards the list of prey items and things that you can read about in, in handbooks and things like that. Amazing fact. So he says that um, the incidence of long-tailed tit nests, long-tailed tit makes the most beautiful nest in, 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 of British birds. It's the fantastic domed nest, like a skull made out of moss and feathers. Incredibly intricate, little tiny hole the bird goes in. He says the incidence of long-tailed tit nests increases in areas where there are a lot of peregrine kills, therefore where there would be lots of feathers and down floating around. It's so good, it must be true, but no evidence otherwise from anybody else. So, I mean, he's, he exists on that edge land territory of people who are kind of, where the bird is, and the experience in the landscape has pressed through him to such an extent. You know, he's, he's seeing more than he probably saw, and he's writing. It's very fascinating. Mark Cocker and um, John Fanshaw produced this beautiful edition of his notebooks and diaries, where he basically doesn't know half the things he's seeing. I mean, which as a hardcore bird watcher uh, is surprising, given how close he's writing these diaries to the, actually writing that book. The book seems flawless, factually, as far as I can make out. But he was—he had a very rapid acceleration from being a, a kind of slightly wonky bird watcher in the field, not quite sure what he was seeing, into producing this extraordinary book of magnesium intensity. So he was a novelist, fundamentally, uh, for me, uh, but a very good one. You, anyone writing in this business has to get over him. I mean, he has to be, he's the kind of landmark that needs to be got around, you know, like a... A sort of anxiety of influence. A roundabout yeah, thing, yeah, yeah, you know, on, yeah. the, on some road near Chelmsford that you've got to take <laughs> no, with, with care. His, I think his best book, actually, is, 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 his only, is his, the only wrote two books. second book is called The Hill of Summer, which isn't about a big fuck-off bird. It's about uh, boringness in July and, and about creeping around in a, in a wood when it's raining and there's just a goldcrest singing. You know, and there's nothing else, and that's and actually he writes amazingly beautifully about the awfulness of the English countryside, uh, the awfulness of summer, the few little meagre consolations that you find. Uh, that's really a work, a book worth seeking out. The Peregrine, you, you know, everyone needs to cope with the Peregrine. The Hill of Summer is the book we can kind of grow up with and learn to love. Something I was I was really interested in both your books is the way that um, you you write about and inhabit the landscapes so intimately and, and intricately. And t- Tim, you write about um, attention to detail being a, a species of love. And Helen, you, you write about paying really close attention to the farmland where you hunt Mabel so that you, 
you know it so well that you know where the larks sleep and you know where the rabbits will be at certain times of the day. Um, and and to this, that idea of paying close attention to the minutiae lines, that seems to be something that you develop and becomes very important through four fields. I, um, I, I wondered if you wanted to talk a bit more about that, both of you. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a marvellous line in that fantastic essay by Auden about the sea, uh, where he says, you know, what is great about the sea is that all that you are not looks back at all that you are. That is what the sea is. And that, for me, is, you know, that was a kind of touchstone line. The great thing about, I'm not the first person to know this or notice this, the great thing about birds and trees and flowers is that you go to the window every morning, open the curtains, and not one thing outside in the world at large knows that it's a blue tit or a robin or a great tit or an elm tree. And that is kind of fantastically liberating and amazingly exciting and amazingly energizing. But they don't care, they don't know about the names. And yet to know the names, to know that there's a blue tit, marsh tit, great tit, long tail tit, willow tit, is actually massively enriching. There's a kind of wonky, bad school of thought that says... You know, naming is, is to reduce the magic. Um, that's bollocks. I'll, I'll second that. Uh, you know, naming <laughs> naming is to deepen the magic, to re- enrich it, to widen it. You know, to know to know there's a meadow pipit. You know, look at listen to their names: meadow pipit, rock pipit, tree pipit, water pipit. You know, that is that's the world: meadow, rock, tree, water. Uh, Fire pipit. You know, that, that's. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's long. You know, there's all the other ones as well. But I mean, even so, um, that's fantastic. And I think it really helps. It helps to know, to look closely, to know that there are there, there are those four or five different species around. Um, and that that's the writers I'm attracted to are people who. And it's interesting that poets are very good at this. Often poets poets come close to scientists in this regard. I think they they you know the close looking that is attendant upon a good poem often is is not dissimilar to the the kind of the taxonomic interest in, in the world at large mm. uh, that, uh, that, that scientific writing can, can bring us mm. towards. Mm. Was, that, was it an enjoyable experience for you as you realised that you were coming to know this place really intimately? Well, it was interesting in that in I, I did tread the same farm over a whole season and that was, you know, and there were some aspects of that I'm not really looking back on and a bit ashamed of and that is that I ref- was re- sort of refusing to see the farm as a place of work. You know, I was kind of a tourist, really. But there were some very interesting things attendant to, to, to doing that. And one of them was that when you're flying a hawk, you do not use binoculars. And I'd spent my, pretty much my entire birding life. As soon as you see something, up come the glasses. Gosh, it's quite 1930. Up come the field glasses. Um, and what happens then is you get that sort of cut-out round shape in which you see the bird very bright, very obvious. And I think Tim and I have talked about this before. You know, field guides present a particular view of... of of birds. They're very obvious, they're very bright, they haven't got backgrounds. But being out without binoculars, birds are all pretty much the size of your thumbnail, and they tend to be flying away from you, certainly from the hawk, if she was up. Um, and you start, I started to realise that what a lot of my bird watching had done before is rip the bird from its context. And I realised that what birding had still, despite that, me- meant to me was that it was a way of pleating memory and landscape together through the birds being the kind of animate objects in it. So I think linnets are a case in point, these lovely little finches, these tiny finches, that when, you know, before I'd always thought of linnets as being these grey heads, a little red bit here, you know, and the the noise they made. But then after a season flying my hawk, I saw linnets as these extraordinary bouncing things that appeared on wires and disappeared and much, much more magical. And now the two kinds of birds have kind of merged for me. So yeah, it, it was a way of seeing the world that was very, very different from the sorts of common understandings of what, what watching animals is about. So yeah, sorry, I'm tailing off a bit there. I wanted to ask Tim a bit about um, the different places you go to in the book and how 
so many of them, almost all of them, I think, are even though they're fields, they're, they're something areas that have been constructed by humans that they're often empty or they're emptying. And you write about how the fens hundred years ago or so were a busy place, and and now you know they're, they're essentially empty mm-hmm. spaces. And it's something that's particularly poignant when you go to Montana and you you visit the Crow Reservation where. The, the land there, their land, is, is not somewhere they inhabit really, or not something that they use. Um, and that, that was something that struck me with linking all the places that mm-hmm. you visited. I wondered if, you, if that was something you experienced and felt as you, as you traveled around. Yeah, but I mean, I like Helen in a way. I'm a, I was always a tourist into these places, although they were places I'd been going back to over a period of time in some cases for several decades. But And I'm not a farmer, and I'm frightened of horses. And um, gave up a walk, you know, regularly because there's a cow near the gate that I don't like the look of. So um, all of those provisos notwithstanding. Yeah, I wanted to write about this common, the commonplace, and I brought, you know, I brought my four fields, but um, which we, from the pound shop. Um, but so they, and it started out with that the sense of this fantastic, you know, my kids used to do drawings. Every child starts a picture with a green crane line across the base of the paper. And that's where I started that this this whole thing from, in a way, you know, knowing that that this sort of the default substrate is a green line across the bottom of a piece of paper, but then at the same time not being a farmer, not being and being frightened of horses and so forth, having a, a disastrous girlfriend, I mean, a disastrous relationship with a girl, um, <laughs> in my in my in my early years, who was the farmer's daughter, uh, and who who went out to shear the sheep. Oh, no, to give to help with the lambing when I was there, and I was left in the bed like some sort of impossible Sunday lunch, and um, you know, not to, not to be addressed until the morning. A- anyway, so that so there was all that kind of complication going on. But but so I was interested in these in the primal green line. But then I was also interested in the sense, and, and this being the, the commonest measure of the, the unit of land that people have made, the earliest mark that we made on the surface of the earth, and all those sorts of things. You know, giving a sod about the sod, but I was also keen to to explore some places that were at turning points in their lives. So places which had been farmed, which were being unfarmed, either voluntarily, or because they were poisoned landscapes, or because the ownership of the land had become complicated and, and oppressive uh, to its original owners, and so forth. So, um, going onto the Crow Reservation, the, I, I write about the Crow because that's where the Custer Battlefield is on is now on Crow Land in Montana. Um, the Sioux, who defeated with the Cheyenne Custer in 1876, had nicked that land from the Crow, and the Crow were given it back afterwards, although they were only given it back on particular terms. They were given it back and sort of kept in villages which they didn't want to live in. They were given all the land, but the land, they couldn't farm the land. They didn't want to become farmers of that land, so they kind of let the land to white farmers and ranchers. So you have a very extraordinary experience traveling around the villages there, and there are only villages really, the Crows, a small tribe. And they're still on their ponies, and they ride their ponies from their houses to the edge of the village, and then they turn them around and ride back again. They don't, you know, the, the, the archetypal, the apogee of sustainable living, you know, the Native American, you know, as sold to us as, 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 the, as the first, first, you know, the first peoples on the earth who were able to kind of live in harmony with their, with their natural harvests and so forth, is totally destroyed there. Uh, they, this is the most, you know, nature deficit disorder, if it exists, is, is most demonstrably clear to me in places like that, where the people who are sold to us in some fantasy as, as being in touch with nature are actually kept from, and not only kept from, are, are keeping themselves from 
the land. They're not interested. They, they don't know how to be in it anymore. Mm. Uh, it, they, they've had it. Um, it's finished. The land is, you know, still is farmed and looks to me, you know, it looks rather beautiful. It's huge fields of, of wonderful kind of wheat, massive numbers of birds, far more birds than you see in a British agricultural landscape. But, you know, profoundly altered in the space of a hundred years. I went there because Custer, Custer's body was the first who was buried, when the, the cavalry, the 7th Cavalry were buried after the battle in 1876, they were the first, that was the first time that soil had ever been turned. Indians don't bury their dead in the ground, they raise them up on sky scaffolds. So I wanted to talk about, to think about other sorts of farming, mm. other sorts of ploughing, uh, and, and the kind of deathliness that, can, that, that might follow what, you know, in some superficial levels, is, is, a, is a benign conversation with the earth. Helen, yeah. I, I was, um, I, I suppose, relieved that you didn't meet many people when you were out with me, particularly when you ended up in pheasant pens around um, Cambridgeshire. There was um, a little bit of inadvertent poaching, yeah. <laughs> um, but in my defence, I was, yeah, it, it was, the hawk did it, not me. Yeah. <laughs> up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com when you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. They, they were the most terrifying bits of the book I found uh, when you were scrambling around trying to find her and uh, mm. a pheasant was being murdered somewhere in a pheasant pen and yeah, you didn't know where the gamekeeper was. Yes, but, yes. Was, was that, did you find when you were out there as well that you were, you were in, a, in a landscape that was un, uninhabited to that extent? You didn't see it was very interesting. People. It's a very good question. It's, it's, it's something I didn't discuss very much in the book and that is that although I had permission to fly on, lands, on various farms around Cambridge... Some part of me didn't want to think of these places as being owned or worked on or anything other than just... Uh, again, I, I sort of wanted to see them through the eyes of the goshawk. So to me, these, these landscapes became assemblages of vegetation. Um, I used to think about the wind direction, the weather. And some part of me was really kicking against, in a, quite an oppositional way, the sense that poaching was anything. It was a, was a thing. It was a human thing, you know. So when my hawk decided to fly over three fields away and end up in a, you know, in a sort of pheasant pen full of pheasants, you know. This, I mean, I really was in a very odd state at this point in my defense. So, so um, I, I would just sort of follow her in and sort of, you know, and part of me is horrified that the, the bird has found this kind of, basically, a, it's like a garden of chickens. Uh, but the part of me that was sort of the hawk was thinking, this is brilliant, like, you know, this is like, you know, this is some sort of bounty. And, and, and those kind of two parts of me were really kind of warring at that time. And it took me quite a long time after that to get to the point where I realized that, you know, I, my claim on the landscape was to sort of fly over it and to sort of take things from it as a hawk. But actually, I'd, I'd wiped free any kind of human ownership or knowledge of the land from me quite willfully, I think. It was, a, it was, it was part of that grief process. I was pushing that away. Sorry, it sounds very... 
it's probably a good moment to see if anybody has any questions. Um, a question for Helen. I mean, so, hello. Hello. I've read a little bit in the press um, sort of leading up to this, and you've, you've alluded to it um, in the talk, but I, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the, I suppose, so, so losing your father, and uh, even that, you know, you said you weren't entirely kind of with it at the time. The prompt, the sort of, um, what led you into finding the gospel, and just the, I suppose, the basics of... Uh, well, the basics that were that I'd, I'd, I'd been, a, as I say, I'd been a fulker in the past. Goshawks were birds I didn't want to ever fly. They were not like the birds I flew. I flew mostly falcons, and goshawks are to falcons pretty much as snow leopards are to house dogs. I mean, they're, they're, they're legendarily hard to tame. They're extremely uh, ferocious, very highly strung. Um, you know, the females have been known to, to, to take small deer. And I just, you know, I, I didn't want anything to do with them. And then when my dad died, I think that part of me that was feeling all those things that one feels after grief, you know, the sort of the, the murderousness, the rage, the kind of, you know, sense of a sort of rejecting the world, I, I saw those in goshawks because they were the meanings goshawks had been given. And I wanted to associate with that goshawk because I didn't want to feel those things myself. So what happened in training the hawk was that I'm living so closely with her, I, I, I basically became a hawk, you know, in, in the sense that I, I felt all those things that I, di I didn't otherwise want to feel. And it was just a, also a very physical way of, of refusing the world, because tr hawk training is, you know, it's a very ancient art, it's sort of 4,000 years, 5,000 years old. And in the early stages, particularly with a hawk like a goshawk, you have to really withdraw from the world, and you start off in a, it's quite a sort of mythical thing, you start off in a, in a darkened room, and you earn the trust of the hawk with gifts of food, and slowly your world widens. But it requires you to really pull away from, from, from your friends and from, from your family. Uh, and it was a good excuse, and it was a, a real distraction. So yeah, again, it's it's not something I'd recommend people do following a bereavement, um, but it, it was a fascinating experience. Um, can I take a, a rather unpopular position, really, and try a bit of the defence of T. H. White? Um, he was. Uh, I mean, it's it's easy, perhaps. I'm not suggesting you are, but for me, to be a bit superior about his uh, position regarding training this hawk. I mean, he did only have medieval, a medieval text, isn't it, Bert? He, he, he didn't only have medieval texts, alas. He had some other ones that he didn't really talk about. So. Oh, right. I, I'm only... <laughs> this all comes out when you go to the archives. I'm not, I'm not being superior there at all. I mean, I, I have enormous respect for White. You know, I think he's an extraordinary writer. But do, do continue. Sorry, sorry. I butted in. That was very rude. I mean, that's, that's interesting because I, you know, I, I'm just going from the the Goshawk, and he does just talk about the difficulty he has, and he has this problem of dealing with the, the medieval text, which is a pretty cruel time, you know, also we're, we're not in some cases using hoods, we're talking about stitching up eyes, um, this still goes on in Kyrgyzstan and in certain places, you know, the use of bag quarry, for example, you know, which we will be horrified of here, but we are dealing with a field sport here. And it's quite interesting to watch peregrines, say, on the south coast, catching pigeons, partially dismembering them, flying backwards and forwards and dropping them for their young in order to train their young. And the reaction of people who are basically birders and people who are interested in hawks. And there seems to be a dichotomy there between the emotions of the birder and the emotions of the falconer, right. who's basically out there to kill game. 
Right. Um, that's very. There's lots of lots of big ways to answer that. So uh, first of all, we'll talk about the the T H White thing. The reason T H White, I think, used medieval falconry guide. It, medieval, it's a, a 17th century guide by Edmund Burt. The reason he cleaved to Burt is uh, he says quite clearly in his unpublished stuff. Again, it's quite unfair for me to, to throw this at you. But he was in love with him. He was in love with Edmund Burt, and he wanted to impress him as he wanted to kind of impress his his, his father, really. So part of the reason he wanted to do this kind of strange, it was an agonizing, he, he, he thought that what you did was basically hold on to the hawk, don't let it sleep for, for days on end, and you kind of had this sort of battle of, of wills with the hawk, and you know, who was going to sleep first. It's a very, very old-fashioned method of training hawks. But in, in those times, it would have been done by a sort of succession of people. You know, it wasn't done by one person. He saw it as a kind of a knight's vigil. So there's a lot going on there that wasn't to do, I think, with what falconry was like in the 16th and 17th century. It was to do with what White wanted it to be like. And I, I think there's some very interesting things to be said about that, which possibly would take too long to do. But the division is fascinating, and I think this division between falconry and ornithology or birding in this country is, is a historical and cultural thing. If you go to America, for example, there's a very close relationship between falconry and raptor science and ornithology over there that there simply isn't here. And I think you can put it down to all sorts of, particularly to do with uh, the social position of falconry in the 19th century in this country. It was very much the, the kind of field sport of aristocrats and the sort of landed gentry who really looked down their noses at um, the kinds of people who poked around on their estates with field glasses trying to find, you know, birds, and they sort of looked down on them. And I think it was a, it's very much a kind of, there's, there's quite a lot of class history in those battling of, of those two things. And of course, when DDT happened and peregrines became rarer and rarer, a few very idiotic falconers started taking birds of prey from the wild because they saw them as theirs. They saw them, you know, we've used these birds for thousands of years, you know. And I think that also bred a lot of ill will between the two cultures. But yes, when, when I was flying my hawk and watching her hunt, I didn't see it as anything other than watching what a wild hawk does. I mean, I was an accessory in the sense that I was there. But I didn't feel that I was, I mean, again, I was in a very odd place, but I didn't feel I was going out there to kill things. That was absolutely not, not, my, uh, my, not the rationale behind what I was doing. I wanted to just see, this, see the hawk fly. Sorry, that sounds like a big defense. Can I say something? Please do. Yeah. Sorry, I've gone um, over ages, sorry. No, no, no. Uh, reality is depressing. I mean, killing in nature is depressing. If you think, I mean, seeing seeing things being killed all the time, or living in the world where where, where even you know killing happens as it does in nature all the time, it's, it's not, it doesn't mean it that automatically becomes okay. I think it's, it's it is quite an depressing thing. I heard an extraordinary story about Derek Ratcliffe, who Helen almost mentioned just now, the, the fantastic scientist of the peregrine, the man who who worked out that the peregrine why the peregrine came close to extinction in Britain in the, in the 50s and 60s. At the end of his life, he, he started writing about Lapland and breeding waders. He said that he'd found the killing too much. You know, he'd been studying wild, wild birds of prey for such a long time, and he'd been watching them kill, and he just got sick of it. Yeah. And I think that's, an, you know, that's extraordinary. A scientist, mm. an absolutely raptor lover, I mean, actually realizing that reality, even the best reality, is, uh, can be too much, you know, mm. sometimes. And, I, uh, and that, was, that was a very striking discovery to encounter that sense of, of a kind of, uh, the, 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 out, the feeling of, of being out of step with, 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 with the world when it's fully in step with itself, and that's something we all have to live with, I guess. It's perhaps worth adding two things to that. Uh, firstly, that the, the reason there are goshawks now in the wild in this country is largely thanks to falconers 
who surreptitiously at first had been releasing the birds back into I think that's right, is that, is that yes, right? Yes, they, they saw the, um, the, the falconers saw the Americans re-releasing peregrines into America and thought, well, we haven't got any goshawks and they're native. So what they discovered was that they could bring birds in from uh, native populations in the rest of Europe and release them back into the wild here. So yeah, it was, it was quite a kind of unofficial, quiet, um, very, very great success story, in fact. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say about that, um, the whole thing about... Uh, yeah, birds as killers. I remember reading an amazing thing you wrote about the goshawk when it had almost caught a rabbit that was going down a hole. Oh, no. And it was almost being dragged into the hole. I don't know if this is in the book. But, yeah, um, this, this is something I have to clarify. This is due to a very, very, very poor piece of writing by me. Um, so we're talking about death. We've gone straight into sort of, into the, 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 say, the meat of it, I suppose is the, quite the wrong thing to say. There's a lot of death. A lot of people eat meat. They don't see the animals die. When I was watching the hawk catching rabbits... I knew that in the wild when a goshawk catches a rabbit, it just starts eating as soon as the thing's immobilized, you know, and the, the boundaries between life and death are at some point in the taking of that meal. Now, I couldn't, I couldn't let that happen. So I used to run in and dispatch the rabbit or the pheasant as quickly as possible, which is a very sobering, made me feel very responsible and accountable at that point. It was a very, very, very strange and quite uncomfortable experience. But in the book, it sounds like I pulled the rabbit out of the hole and threw it to the goshawk to kill. That didn't happen. I just forgot to put in the bit where I dispatched the rabbit first. So I just wanted to make that clear. I, I wasn't just sort of gleefully tossing living things to my hawk. It did. Well, yeah, it, did, it was uncomfortable. It was a sense that, I, yes, um, she had a rabbit down halfway down a hole and had injured it. And I knew that I didn't want the rabbit to run away injured. So I had to sort of intervene at that point. But that was pretty much the only intervention that I made. I wanted to ask you what... Um Mabel's kill rate was. I mean, how, how um, efficient a, a predator did you find her? Did she miss a lot of the time? Yes, yes, she yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And interestingly enough, uh, I used to cheer whatever it was that had got away, even yeah. though I was, you know, yeah. I just think, oh, that was amazing. And it gave me an insight into that very strange way in which a lot of sporting writers talk about respect for the quarry and respect for... And it's all kind of hedged in this strange, again, this sort of 19th century social codes. But it made me realise that really, yes, watching two animals in this, you know, this very elemental, visceral mm. kind of experience, you, you, your, your, your sympathies are never with just one of them. Mm. But I didn't, I didn't keep, sort of statistically keep tallies of <laughs> how many, <laughs> like cricket, cricket but scores. I think perhaps that that can be a myth that's misapplied to some birds of players that they just kill everything, and, and that's not the case in the wild, is that actually their, think, their success yeah. rate... Doesn't, probably doesn't, knows doesn't more Baker about this, say this, Tim? He sort of says that, that peregrines can, can kill anything, but they just choose not to. He, he sort of says, you know, that they're just so utterly perfect that, you know... But how many of us have ever actually seen a bird of prey kill something? If anyone watches any of the new forest had a hobby nest. Oh no, it was awful. The hobby chick got eaten by a goshawk. Oh, my heart broke. Yeah, no. There was one egg and one chick, and the goshawk came in and took a touch to the disgusting website. But there is there's a kind of sort of popularity board, isn't there, with, with animals? You know, that, you know, hobbies do a kind of. If you watch the Dolby Peregrine's website, you know, they've got an amazing range of prey that they've even woodcock at night. That's right. And storm petrels. Yeah. yeah. Yes, they look up and they see. They, they look up. It's terrible, actually. They look up and see the reflection of streetlights on these migrating birds at night. And obviously, it's very easy to catch this bird. You know, you basically just fly up and to sort of a supermarket shelf. You know. Um, but webcams are fascinating. I mean, the webcams. A lot of people now have this incredibly close 
visual relationship with families of hawks through webcams, and I think that's really changing the way we think about raptors. But I still think, listen to me, old utopian sort of vision, but I still think that the physical presence of a bird of prey is a miraculous thing in a way that a hawk on a screen isn't. And when I used to do a lot of school visits with birds of prey, I used to watch small children just absolutely become wrapped with awe in the presence of birds like this. And I, I got a couple of letters years later from people who become conservationists because of that experience. And sorry, I'm going on too much. I'll be quiet in a second, but one of the things my, my, I'm, I hope my book does is to, it talks a little bit about how that close relationship with a wild animal that I had was... Well, it's something that's quite rare now, that sort of sense that one can encounter wild animals in a, in a sort of very familiar, close way. And that's, I think, that, that wonderment is what conservation and, and love is built from. And, and, you, know, you, can't, you can't love things if you only see them at a distance. Um, or yeah. or if you, you only see them through a birdwatching hide. Or, or, or from a raised walkway. You've got to burrow, burrow through the... Yeah. Yeah. Do you She was tame, but she was not domesticated. Um, and if I if I left her if if it is if I'd left her alone for uh, a couple of weeks, she'd have been completely wild again. Yeah. So. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. Goshawks are famous for this. Once you've tamed any other kind of bird of prey, they tend to stay tame. But goshawks revert to being absolutely wild in a, in a matter of days. Yeah. So they have a kind of very sort of legendary position in sort of folklore for this. This, this may be an obvious point, but both, um, both Tim and Helen, both your works, they would probably be shelved in the natural history section. But actually they're about people and humans' relationships to the land. What does that tell us, I suppose, about what natural history Publishing is? opportunities. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is, is natural history a misnomer when it's actually telling us more about ourselves or, and our relationship with the world? Than, maybe it's a tenuous question, I'm not sure. It's very <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, there is a there's a moment, and maybe the writing has found the moment, or the moment has found the writers. And we might have struggled to find our books being published, you know, ten years ago, or and, and certainly twenty years ago. I'm almost certain that that would have been the case. Although they might have, we might have been able to call them something else and write the same book. Uh, it's always interesting, isn't it, to see the you know the little codes on the back of a book, you know, and and, and realize and, and question whether that's the place you would put that book. Yeah, I was pressed into doing it by talking to other writers. I mean, that's what started me thinking that the way of seeing, to come back to where James started the conversation, you know, the experience over time and a way of seeing over time allows you to, I mean, might give you something to say. Uh, so long-term encounters, you know, wanting to, wanting to write about that meant that most, mostly it would be through birds, and I, for me, because that's the way, that's the first language for me, and that's the way into a landscape. It's, I mean, I'm better at talking to birds than I am at talking to people. So, and I wanted, I wanted to write about the process of the way in which uh, the, the, the non-human world makes less of me, uh, which sounds a solipsistic thing to say, given that you're writing a book which is a sort of autobiography of a kind, and you're, you're on every page. That in itself seems to me a, a kind of a writing trope you know, that happens in travel writing, that happens in novels, that happens in poems, you know, in, in all sorts of different places. I mean, the way the kind of strange burial of self in, into, the, into a wider world, so that if there was a category that said burial of self into a wider world, you know, <laughs> that's, that's where I... Yes. Elements of the world feels softly. Mm. But they both begin with F, yes. Mm. No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so they are 
Well, I, I mean, I think what nature writing... I mean, I've, I've always loved nature writing, and I used to sort of hoover up what was called nature writing. I don't know, it wasn't called nature writing then, but earlier stuff, very, very... Um, very authoritative, you know, you did never feel there was a person writing about this, this, the, the stuff out there. And it was often kind of quietly moralizing as well. But also this, this sort of quite avuncular tone. And I, I just, I guess what, what's happening is what happened to anthropology years ago, which is it's just becoming more reflexive. We're having to put ourselves in the story. You know, we we're on the edge of an environmental apocalypse, if not sort of stepping into it right now. You know, writing about na- nature, which is out there, I mean, it's a real thing, obviously, you know, but, but writing about it as if, as if it's it's not any connect it has no connection with the way that we see the world or the, our own assumptions i think is is quite dangerous so um yeah just a bit more reflexivity and Helen, uh, one of the things that you observe in your book is that i think that the wildest experience you have is actually in someone's backyard in the middle of a town and, and, and there's a sense that actually wildlife or experiences with the wild are perhaps not as remote as they once were or were perceived to be and they, they those encounters can happen in a domestic setting, in an urban setting, certainly with birds of prey, that's something that yes, uh, and that's one of the things that birds of prey are very good at, and that is that they're they're quite some species are incredibly visible, very charismatic, and can 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 operate in very urban environments, as you say. You know, we've got we've got peregrines everywhere now, and I think that's one of. I mean, this is, sounds like I'm kind of getting at your question. Um, I just want to sort of turn it and say that one of the problems with birds of prey is that they because they are very visible and they're kind of conservation success stories. Um, and you can see them in inf- urban, urban environments, they're kind of masking a lot of very invi- sort of quiet, invisible draining of life from non-urban uh, uh, environments in, in this country and across Europe and across the world, really, you know. So birds like linnets and corn buntings and turtle doves and, you know, grey partridges are just nose-diving. Um, but we see red kites in the sky and we see peregrines and we think everything's fine. So I think I think... That what I was trying to do there was certainly at the time I wanted to be wild because I was grieving, but the concept of wildness is not the same as, as nature. So the two need to be kind of pulled apart. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I approached your book, Helen, not as anybody interested, especially in falconry, but as somebody with a, a long time interest in T.H. White. And it seems to me to really understand the man and his work, you have to really understand his sexuality. Yes. And in your fantastic book, you do discuss his, his homosexuality and you mentioned his scurrilous fantasies about spanking schoolboys. And there's also mention of acquiring an interest in his son, in a, in his teenage son of a friend. Yes. But of course, fundamentally, um, as you probably well know, T.H. Uh, White was a paedophile and he had a sexual interest in young boys between the ages of 11 and 15. And that's right through his entire career, from when he was a schoolmaster, through his correspondence with Potts, boys visiting him in Alderney, and so on. My question is, um, I just wondered why you didn't really bring this to the fore, or explicitly mention it in your book. I mean, you're very precise in your falconry vocabulary, and in Mm -hmm. your naturalist eye, picking out the reindeer moss and the poults and all the great detail. Yes. But it, there is a bit of evasion, I feel, in that aspect of white sexuality, and I wondered if you could just comment on it. Yes, um, it's, it's certainly the case, I think, that, that white's um, primary sexual interest was, as I think, I, think as, I mean, I, I, having gone through all the notebooks and journals, was certainly self-identified as a sadist. That, I think, was how he saw himself. 
Um, he had a lot of relationships with women that were very unhappy. Um, and I think that later love obsession, whatever you want to call it, that was largely unspoken, I believe, with, with his friend's son, is very troubling. And this happened obviously a lot later than, than the, the period of which I'm writing. Um, I thought that I thought that I talked quite a lot about his sexuality and I described that he had interest in fantasies about, about schoolboys at the time. But at the time he was living a very monastic life, there was no activity, as it were, I could see at all at that time that was present in any of the notebooks. And I chose to not talk about things that weren't happening. The, there were the parts of the journals that I looked through which were erased, I thought, I assumed were going to be him di discussing these matters. And I thought, this must be it. This must be the bit where White says, you know, I wish this, I wish that. And I, I very carefully sort of tried to work out what those parts were about. And they were, in fact, about masturbation. So what was going on, I think, at this point was deep shame for his desires, as far as I could see from his unpublished notebooks, railing at society in a way that I found very unpleasant. I, 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 obviously, his pedophilia, pedophilic tendencies disturbed me greatly. But at the time that this was happening, again, this was, he was living in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a house with a hawk. And perhaps in future books or articles, I, perhaps I might talk a little more about the, 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 the deeply problematic aspects that I think happened certainly later on in his life, yes. I was just wondering whether nature writing is a very English phenomenon. I'm not really aware of any um, books in translation, and I, I wondered whether it might be that because of our particular landscape and the way that we have developed industrially, that we have this romantic attachment to nature, which isn't quite the same in places where there are far more birds and natural objects. I mean, I was just thinking, I suppose, of southern Spain, where you know the raptors are, are so very present that there's even a raptors rehabilitation club, you know, damaged raptors. So, but here, you know, it seems it seems all slightly romantic. Well, that's a big question about nature. Um, I mean, America is where it. I suppose North America is where it's it's lived longest actually and most consistently on bookshelves. I mean you used to go be able to go to bookshops in America in as long as I've been going to America and, and there would be a, a designated shelf for nature writing which there hasn't been in Britain. I mean there's been there's been the field guide shelf but there's never been the kind of um, wanky writing department um, until now. Um, so America would be the place and uh, but American nature writing is slightly different I mean maybe because they've got bigger landscapes and uh, and more places where you know, in the deep ecological sense, people haven't been. Um, although that's a slightly mysterious and uncertain concept. Uh, but there is still a sense of wilderness in America. I suppose that lies behind much of the nature writing, or a kind of conversation with the idea of wilderness, at least. It's the poets for me who do it. I mean, the, if you look at Spanish poets, you look at French poets. They write fantastic poems about grass. That's good for me. Uh, so it's interesting that there's less of a sense of of creative non-fiction in, in Europe, that's, you may well be right, but I think it's, it's still it's finding its place in other forms of literature as much as ever. Um, I, uh, what was I reading recently? Um, this, uh, in Hungarian poetry, which I know a little bit about by accident, um, there, are fantastic, there are fantastic bird poems um, written through the whole of the 20th century um, by poets who were you know, accidentally bumping into per, uh, birds in a way that 
you know, Louis McNeese and W.H. Auden, you, 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 you scrabble around, although Auden did a little bit of that, but you I mean you scrabble around, T.S. Eliot's not a great bird poet, you, you scrabble through the middle of the years of the 20th century in, in, in English letters to find, um, to find much of, of poetry of, of birds continuing. So I think it's interesting that we have, we've made this sort of sub-genre, probably in the shadow of America, I, I think, in, in, as a publishing uh, category. Uh, I don't think it's really to do with the landscape as far as I'm concerned. I think it's more to do with this, the bleed it, it, that, hap that happened maybe earlier in Britain than it has happened elsewhere, between from science on the one hand and from poetry on the other. Um, and, you know, I've written a bit, little bit about this myself in, in, in places. I mean, for a long time, the kind of nature writing of the, that we think of in the W.H. Hudson, Richard Jeffries mold, Edward Thomas, come, you know, is, walks a line between those two things, poetry on the one hand and, and sort of proper close-looking science, if you like. And that's, that's unusual, but I think there are there's German examples of that, and I think there are, there are Italian examples of that. Calvino, you know, it, it goes everywhere, so it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard, to, hard to be prescriptive, I think, or exactly. I was just thinking that um, is the new nature writing, as it might be called, it's partly to do with where the natural world is viewed, but kind of almost like a membrane through which emotions are, are mediated. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, you, you wrote this book, but it was, it's also about grief. So maybe it could go in a psychology section. Like, you know, and just to correct this woman, it's not so much English writers as British writers, because of course there's people like Kathleen Jamie who's writing beautifully, but that kind of fusion of poetry and essay about the natural world, but again, a lot of kind of um, emotions are filtered in her vision of the natural world. Yeah, a good comment. I haven't really got anything to say. I think that's absolutely right. We're just nodding. Yeah. <laughs> good. Well. Okay. Well, thank you thank very you. much to Helen and to Tim, and thank you for so many good questions as well. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.